Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. Our podcast has turned out to be a great way for folks to learn about some of the down-ballot candidates in the elections this year. Maybe the most important year of elections in the history of the United States. Today we have two. We're going to talk about a man running for California State Assembly in District 44, Steve Pearson. He's a community activist, a sound mixer, a composer, a general genius. He's got great experience in California state politics. We're going to see what Steve's up to. But first, I want you to meet uh, Gil Cisneros. Gil is a former congressman. He is a wonderful man. He's also a philanthropist. And where do you find out why? He's a former undersecretary of defense for personnel and readiness under the Obama administration. He had to step down to run for Congress again. We're going to get to Gil in a second. But first, Wheezy, where do you have this week? I've been watching some television, Fritz. I'm not surprised. Yeah, how about you? All right. Here's, a, here's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to tell you a little story. Archie Leach was a destitute little boy in Bristol, England, told that his clinically depressed mother had died and then abandoned by his alcoholic father. He was placed in the care of an unloving grandmother. At 16, Archie ran away and joined the circus, training as a stilt walker and pantomime actor and traveling to America to perform at New York's Hippodrome Theater. Young Archie decided to stay in the States, touring the country in vaudeville acts and honing his craft as an actor. Subsequent theater roles led to screen tests and a contract with Paramount Studios, provided he changed his name to Cary Grant. Jason Isaacs embodies Cary Grant in the four-part BritBox miniseries Archie, which tells his story with empathy and dramatically turbulent detail. A bumpy and unfulfilling relationship with one's mother can leave a man with an inability to form healthy relationships with women. Unable to fix his desperately sad childhood circumstances, Cary Grant seems to have spent his adult years attempting to control his public persona and his romantic partners. The film is told from the point of view of Diane Cannon, Cary Grant's fourth but not final wife, and their daughter, Jennifer Grant. Cary Grant was the dashingly ideal British gentleman, and within the caste system that is English society, he felt a necessity to suppress the starkly lower-class reality of his origins. The darkness emerged when his control was challenged. For example, he could not celebrate any of Diane's achievements. They posed a threat. He questioned the way she dressed. He gave away her dog. He placed a coaster underneath her drink outside as if the dew wouldn't have its own way with the patio furniture. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie resisted the idea of becoming a parent, but welcomed daughter Jennifer in his 60s and then devoted himself to giving her the father he was denied. Through Archie, the lens widens and we see the full scope of the flawed human man who created the perfection that was Cary Grant. Sure, he possessed the building blocks, the talent, the charm, the face, but like any of us, he was nicked and bruised and working on it, pulling Cary Grant dangerously close to being relatable. Archie is on BritBox. I was blown away right? by Jason Isaac's portrayal. Oh and, and for me, it's always the, the voice. If they don't have the voice right, the rest is I can't suspend my disbelief. But this guy nailed his voice. Yeah. Didn't he? He nailed every aspect it was of, really good. of his continence, yes. Really good. Well, I'm going to do a touching movie called Still, currently streaming on Apple TV. It's a look at the life and struggles of Michael J. Fox, besieged by Parkinson's disease. I know it sounds sad and depressing. It is far from that. It's expi- inspiring. It's funny. It's a salute to family. It's a salute to the tenacity of a person in the face of physical struggles. I'm so glad I watched this. It's done by acclaimed documentarian Davis Guggenheim. He uses documentary footage, archives, even scripted elements to sort of put you in the moment. First and foremost, 
It reminds you of the megastar that Michael was in the 80s. He had this hit show, Family Ties, and I think, didn't you work on that? You, you were a page in that, right? I was a page on the pilot, so you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, so he's doing that show, which was brilliant because it was the first show where ex-hippie parents in the 60s end up raising a son who's a full-on Reagan Republican. Mm-hmm. It was a great twist. And there are great insights into how he had to shoot the TV show, get a few hours of sleep, and then go dreary-eyed and exhausted at night to go shoot Back to the Future. I don't know how he did it. We go back to the beginning of his life where Michael's raised in Canada on a military base. He was too short for his own good and had to use his wit and his charm to ward off bullies. The heart of the story is his Parkinson's diagnosis at 29 years old which is a really rarely young age for that diagnosis. We get to watch his declining physical abilities. We see him fall down while he's walking. We watch his excruciating physical therapy, but we see him get lifted up by his wife and children, especially his wife, Tracy Pollan. She put her own life and ambition aside twice for Michael. First, she had a budding acting career herself. She was getting some fame, but shelved it to become Mrs. Michael J. Fox. Then second, she had to put herself second after his diagnosis in order to become his primary caregiver. Before the opening credits roll, you're convinced this is going to be depressing. It is not. People have asked Michael why he decided to allow people to see this part of his life because he uh, responded, I love my mind. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. And he is wonderful he's uh he's you you will realize that his his character is much bigger than his physical stature wow all right i'm going to introduce a person i've known and befriended many many years ago for odd reasons gil cisneros is a politician and a philanthropist he served as undersecretary of defense for personnel and readiness in the biden administration he stepped down from that position to run for congress i said the obama administration meant the biden administration earlier and i seem to be having the same confusion that uh former president trump had about the two. <laughs> but anyway uh, he, he had to step down to run for congress in the 39th district Uh, Full disclosure, his wife Jackie and I worked together at NBC for years. She was an excellent assignment editor at Channel 4 News. And I don't want to do what Jackie and I would both do, and that would be burying the lead in the news business. Gil and Jackie won a $266 million Mega Millions jackpot and became philanthropists. And they've devoted themselves to building many programs in education and other areas that have made many people's lives a lot better. When they won, I asked Gil for five bucks in the commissary and he blew me off Mm. like I was trash. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it. Hey, Gil, I'm so happy to see you. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you too. You're doing a great job, my friend. My first question is this. When before you won the lottery, did you and your wife used to sit there and have that if we won the lottery conversation? And then after you won the lottery, how much were you able to achieve of your hopes and dreams if you won the lottery? You know, it's funny you should ask that because she used to always want to play that game with me and I never wanted to do it. I'm like, why? I'm like, I live in reality. It's like, you know, I I don't want to think about hypotheticals or what if we could do this or what if we could do that. But then one day, you know, we were actually coming home from dinner um, and we drove by a, a lottery office and she asked me that question. Hey, what would you want to do if we won the lottery? And for whatever reason, I, I played along this time and I told her, um, you know, I would want to start a foundation where we could help kids 
that were kind of in a situation like me when I was growing up and like in high school, right? Didn't really knew they wanted to do more, knew they wanted to go to college, but don't really know or didn't know what steps needed to be taken in order to to make that happen. Um, and you know, the the one time I play the game, it's like three weeks later. Literally, we won the lottery, and so uh, the, after that, I told Jackie, I go well. I guess now we got to start that foundation. Time for you to start like listening to your did. wife, my friend. That's yeah. all I'm saying. <laughs> and you know what? The beautiful yeah. thing about your situation was, unlike 97% of lottery winners that turn out to be a gut-wrenching, horrible story where people were taken advantage mm-hmm. of, they were bilked, they miss. Advise themselves on money. You have done so many wonderful things for wonderful people, and it's a great story. If I won the lottery, I hope I would live up to the moral code you guys have. So what what happens? And do you have to put a team together to manage your money? Because immediately you're you have responsibilities with money that you've never had in whatever tax bracket you had previously found yourselves in. So what what is the wise lottery winner want to do like day one? No, I, I think that's uh, right on what you just said was, um, you know, we were very uh, lucky that Jackie had an uncle who was a lawyer at a, at a law firm, uh, Sidley Austin, who was where he was working at the time. And he said, hey, why don't you guys come down and talk to one of our partners? And so um, we did and we sat down with him and, and he's, you know, kind of telling us, well, you know, these are some of the things I think you should do. And uh you know, he started talking about an estate plan and, and all these things and about like, you know, preparing for like when you die. And I'm like, we haven't even got the money yet. And we're already <laughs> talking about when we die, you know, got everything kind of yeah. set got in it. place for when that happens. But, but you know, the, the, that was a good conversation to have because it, it really helped us kind of think, okay, um, we need to find an estate attorney. We need to find people that could help us manage the money. Um, you know, I would say like for the first year that we did this, right. And when we got it, um, you know, I was, uh, you could drive yourself nuts, just kind of like trying to watch it, right. Watch the stock market. Where's your money? You got money in here and you're watching all these things. And, um, you, you know, it's about getting people. I think what, what's helped us is we got people that we could trust, uh, people. Um, we put that team together that have really been very helpful to us. Um, and I will say Jackie was a little resistant to that at first because she was like, well, why can't you do it? Oh you know, you have an MBA and, you know, why can't you just do this? And I'm like, this is just a lot more than we've ever really had to kind of deal with. So I think it's good. Is um, there a lot of people that you, know, you couldn't stand that became your best friends? No, you know, <laughs> it's it, I was pretty upfront with my family at first, like. You're going to ask the questions. The answer is, you're going to ask the question. The answer is no. Oh, that's funny. No, but, I mean, first, you know, first, and, and, first rule is don't give any ahead. money to Fritz. Yeah, but why? That's, well, yeah. no, you just wrecked because that. Because he'll, he'll, he'll keep going back to the well. He'll just keep coming back he'll to the well. He'll keep coming back. Yeah. All right, listen to me. The 39th district is basically the San Gabriel Valley, and the San Gabriel Valley has Chris, a, It's actually the it's the 31st. 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 Oh, they, he, the 39th he, was, the, was the was the We should give his trajectory cuz he was a congressman for 39 and now he's running for 31. Thank you so much for straightening that out. Okay, right. uh, anyway, it, it's district. the San Gabriel yeah. Valley is is the area you're running right. to represent now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes. it, there's a heavy concentration of Asians there. You are endorsed by uh, Aspire Pack, which is an Asian-based uh, pack. 
Understanding mm-hmm. that the Asian community isn't a monolith, what are the specific concerns in the San Gabriel Valley right now that you'd like to address? Well, I, I think, you know, they've had a, a good uh, member of Congress here uh, for a while, and that's uh, Grace Napolitano, who uh, has been a champion for mental health and a champion for the environment. And those are things that I would definitely want to you know, make sure that we carry on. I think uh, the environment uh, is a, it is a big issue here, both uh, with the uh, protecting the air and protecting the groundwater here. There are there's a lot of landfills that are that surround the the, uh, the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, you know, the possibility of always contamination of that spillage kind of leaking into the groundwater and contaminating the water. So they want to make sure that their water is protected. They want to make sure the air is protected and do what we need to, to there. I know um, the, they've. You know, you keep hearing about the expansion of freeways and how we need to do more. One of the things I want to be able to bring into the uh, the area is is we need to invest more in public transportation. I think in Southern California, mm-hmm. uh, we need to connect our you know our cities and counties uh, to make it easier for people to navigate, uh, so that the, the the car doesn't always become the first option. Um, you know, we need to make it more. Um, yeah. When I was in Congress before, I, I got on the Metro people, um, Metrolink. I'm like, you know, if you actually made it accommodating for me to get to a Dodger game with, with, with a train that actually ran after the game ended, I would <laughs> use the public transportation to get to the game. Um, you know, we need to do things like that, right? You know, you go to cities like Washington, D.C., you go to cities like San Francisco, uh, where they've invested in public transportation, New York, obviously, as well. Um, you know, they, they've invested in public transportation. People use it. They rely on it. Uh, we need to do the same thing here, and that's one of the things that I want to make sure that we go, uh, you know, protecting our environment, investing in public transportation, and, and making sure that we're taking care of our working people here in the San Gabriel Valley. You, you, you have dense ethnic populations, also Hispanic population in the San Gabriel Valley. And the first time you were in Congress, you were part of the Hispanic Caucus. Are there any particular areas of interest that have to do with the Spanish population, East LA, all the way out through the San Gabriel Valley? You know, I think um, immigration, obviously, is an issue that kind of mm-hmm. comes up, right? I think, you know, we need immigration reform. We need to make sure that we have a pathway to citizenship. Uh, one of the things that I was happy that I was able to do when I was at the the Pentagon is we actually made it easier for uh, non-citizens to become citizens in the military. They could actually get their citizenship uh, after they finished boot camp if they 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 did the paperwork and 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 got everything done. Uh, as soon as as soon as they finished uh, boot camp, they would be able to take the oath and become citizens. Uh, we need that, to do that's more. That's not happening anymore. Does that not happen anymore? Well, no, it would see the thing is people always assume that if you served in the military, you became a citizen, but it doesn't. That's not the case. You you still have to go through the process. But what we what we did was we expedited it. Right. So that in a matter of weeks, a person could become a U.S. citizen if they got their paperwork done. And all they needed to do was to finish boot camp in order to make Mm -hmm. that happen. Mm -hmm. So. These are the things that we need to do, right? We need to find past the citizenship. We need to support our dreamers, our, our DACA students, uh, those that are here on TPS that have been here for like decades. Uh, these are these are issues that are important uh, 
you know, to uh, not only the Hispanic community, it's actually very important to the Asian community, too, that you mentioned. Absolutely. Um, if you were in Congress you know, right now, if you were in Congress right now, would you sign off on this bill they're negotiating right now? Or maybe you don't know enough about it, but what's your feeling? Well, I, I look, uh, I, I I agree with the part about, um, you know, we need to, well, are you talking about the, uh, the border bill? Yeah, the right one, now, right, you? that they're fighting about. In, in For Ukraine state? aid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, look, I, I, we need comprehensive immigration reform. I, I don't know if this is the best way to go about doing it right now with that bill. Uh, but, you know, we, we do need to protect our borders. We, but, uh, but, you know, individuals are coming here because, you know, they're in dire straits. They're in need. Uh, they're being uh, oppressed and, you know, in their in their countries that they live in. You know, people just don't want to pick up and leave where they're from, I, I think. Right. They're doing it for reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be able to kind of have that pathway for them to kind of see if they qualify for asylum, if they qualify, you know, to be here for like the like programs like TPS in order to do that. Right. And, you know, we need to make sure that we have that path to citizenship. So, you know, I'm, I'm for, pro, you know, I'm for bills and stuff and laws that we need to pass that are going to do that and help us find that that way to make sure that we're actually taking care of people and we're not just throwing them aside. One of, one of the trips that I took when I was in Congress before was, down to the border, down to El Paso. And um, what we were doing then was just not, you know, we were basically, you know, just throwing people to the cartels by leaving them in Mexico. Um, they were getting kidnapped. Uh, they were having to pay ransoms in order to be free, you know, in order to get free. Um, they weren't getting any services there. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to do, right? We, you know, I think we need to, like I said, we need to kind of find that path. Uh, and really what the Trump administration did was to really, they had cut the workforce down there at the border so that there weren't as many people there for them to kind of handle these cases, right? We need yeah. to- Yeah, and then you have people like Nikki yeah, Haley. Right, and then you have people like mm-hmm. Nikki Haley and some of the other Republicans that are saying, leave them in Mexico until they go through the process. Well, there's a reason why they're trying to get out of Mexico because their lives are in danger. So I, I don't right. know. I, I, right. I mean, it's like these people are- Walking into walls. I don't know. No, it is. Uh, and, and look, what they were doing right there wasn't working. It was putting people in danger. And we can't do that. We need to. We need to improve the process. We need to have to have the people there that can make sure that the progress is that it's actually being done. You know that it's working and that it's getting done. And when you're cutting staff and you're cutting the number of people that can process these applications, it it. it you know, you're only making it tougher and more difficult. Now, you were a Republican until 2008, and you you left the party when it became, in your words, too ideological. Can you elaborate on how you feel that presents itself to voters, and how it was, and how it has continued swinging into increasingly dangerous zones since 2008, um, the Republican Party? You know, people have tried to kind of make that case when I ran in 2018, when he's a former Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, Look, I will put my democratic record against anybody, mm-hmm. you know, voting wise, what I've done. And uh, no, but I want to know about you know, your journey, you, your journey, and mm-hmm. what you know, because I, I, I actually think that in in the environment that we look at now, when we see that somebody is a former Republican, it's all it's kind of commendable because your reasons for 
for joining that party, those ideological reasons are now they're wiped. It's it's a very very different party. So what was your arc? This, yeah, this this is this is not the party of the Republican Party is not the party of Lincoln. It is no longer the. It's not even really the party of Abraham Lincoln. I mean uh, Ronald Reagan, no. even though they like to kind of cling to him. Um, you know, when you think of like Ronald Reagan, like supported amnesty. You know, giving you know, finding a path to citizenship for those that were here. Um, <laughs> he um, also, you know, supported the you know common sense gun legislation with the Brady Bill. Um, you know, these are these things that that don't fly would not fly today in the Republican Party. Um, and I think it has gotten you know too ideological, right? To think that this was the the. Uh, you know, the Republican Party was a party that stood up for ending slavery, right? And and uh, <laughs> but you don't really kind of seem like the people that were are in there today are, are they? It's like they want to. They're not about diversity and inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. I was also when I was at the Pentagon, I was also the chief diversity and inclusion officer for the Department of mm-hmm. Defense, and you know, I, I spent two hours getting grilled by Republicans as to why do we need diversity? Really? Why is it important? Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know, when you got, you know, the leadership of the military, uh, you know, the admirals and generals that are, are serving, right, when 92% of them are white men, you know, I, I think we need to do something to diverse our leadership, right? And, and really, to me, diversity has always been about creating opportunity. Uh, the program that, that that I got my scholarship in. I, I was very fortunate that, um, you know, when I joined the Navy, somebody had said uh, that I had met a senior enlisted guy said, you should apply for this program. Uh, that program was the Navy's uh, diversity program to help, you know, uplift people of color and give them a chance to, to move into the officer ranks. Um, you know, they ended that program at some point, I think about maybe about five or six years after I finished it. But, now they're bringing it back and they're trying to grow it and, and, and really, but we need, you know, diversity, you know, it makes us stronger. It makes us better. It is something that we need to, uh, you know, look, businesses are doing it. Uh, the, the, you know, we need to diversify our C-suites there in, in corporate America, but we also need to diversify our, our officer corps, our leadership there in the United States military as well. And that is something that, you know, I took very seriously and, and something that I know Secretary Austin takes very seri- seriously and that we need to do that. Uh, but, yeah, it was uh, I got grilled there for about two hours as to why is this important and why are we doing that? Right. It's um, but, you know, if they don't see uh, for some people, they just don't see the, the strength and diversity and having, you know, everybody having a seat at the table and providing the diversity of input. And the diversity of, of really kind of their, their lives um, and giving that input, you know, really does kind of make it stronger. And it gives us better ideas and, and it, it gives us a better pool to pull things from. And so that's why I think it's important. And, and I don't see that today in the Republican Party. I 100 percent agree. Before we let you go, we want to bring in a friend of yours. You guys have battled together in the field of uh, <laughs> politics and uh, are of like mind. Steve Pearson's going to say hello to you, Steve. Hi, Gil. How are you? Um, I we're we're I, I don't want to overstate our relationship. I was thrilled to be part of the team that got Gil uh, elected to Congress. 
back in 2018, I was working with Swing Left at the time, and um, our organization was uh, instrumental in helping flip some of these red to blue seats. And uh, I'm excited to have you get back there. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, it is um, like Swing Left did a tremendous job, not only in my race, but in a lot of uh, seats that time uh, to flip them. What is um, swing left? Now we, need to, we need to flip them back. We need to flip them back. We so, do. What swing is swing left? left? Indivisible and swing left were groups that popped up after Trump was elected. Like, what can we do? How can we help? And That's exactly right. Um, right after Trump was elected, there was this influx of, um, you know, anxiety. Uh, and folks really channeled that into productive action. And Swing Left was one of the groups that started. And, um, you know, that's how I got my start. Um, I grew up in D.C. I grew up around politics. Um, God bless you for wanting to go back there, Gil. I'm, I'm happy here in California. <laughs> you can you can take that on. But, um, uh, you know, I worked in the entertainment industry for a long time. And when Trump got elected, um, you know, we were just so full of anxiety. We wanted to take action. And uh, Swing Left was just getting started. So uh, I helped uh, build that program in Southern California. And uh, what it did was it took volunteers from predominantly blue Democratic areas and got them out to uh, red swing districts like uh, the old CA 39, which has now been redistricted, but um, where we got Gill elected and um, and all over all over the nation. Uh, we, we did that. And I was their national training director through 2020. Awesome. Well, we don't want to hold you any longer, Gil, but I, I just want to wish you luck. I, I, I've known you and Jackie and know where your hearts are, and there's nobody that has the uh, the welfare of other people more in their heart than you do. And uh, we're wishing you luck in this election, my friend. It's great to talk to you. Well, hey, good to, good to see you again. Good to catch up. I definitely miss you on the news there, but I'm glad you're 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 doing good things here. I don't and, miss uh, me on the, the news. Out. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, what's the website they can go to to help you out if they choose to? It's easy to remember. Gillonthehill.com. Ah. I love that. Gil. Listen, good luck. That was a, uh, thank you very much. Get Appreciate down there with it. a weed whacker and start thinning stuff out in Washington. <laughs> All right, well, my friend. I thank want to give. Uh, thank you thank so you. much for joining us, Gil. I want to give. Uh, Say hi to my mom, Gil. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Uh, I want to give our uh, other guest, our in-studio guest, his uh, uh, his current due. He's been very active in the California Democratic Party. We said uh, he's represented the San Fernando Valley as a Democratic uh, delegate. As he was talking to Gil about, he has been a California field director and national training manager for Think Left. Swing he, left. Swing left, I'm yeah, sorry. That's okay. But think left before you swing left because you could hurt yourself. <laughs> All right. He's been a community activist, which you'll remember was Barack Obama's path into politics. He was uh, inspired slash, and I love your, you, you, you sort of hinted at it, inspired slash irritated into activism in 2016, trying to explain to your daughter what happened in the 2016 election. He's currently running for California State Assembly District 44, which is North Glendale, Montrose, La Crescenta, Sunland, Tahunga, Shadow Hills, North Hollywood, Burbank, Toluca Lake, Studio City, Sherman's Valley Village. And I say that only to tell you that I have lived in or are currently living in three of those communities. There you go. He, he hosted a podcast called How We Win. He's a sound engineer, composer, great um, great experience in the entertainment industry. We're very happy to have Steve Pearson. There's your. Uh, we don't have any more time now because the. Okay, that's okay, it. Okay, Thanks. Okay. It so Good nice night, to everybody. be here with you all. Goodbye. Happy to have you. Here. <laughs> uh, what I, I found fascinating about your story, Steve, is your dad. 
mm-hmm. worked with Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Helping to implement the Civil Rights Act of 1964, maybe the single greatest, or was supposed to be the single greatest piece of legislation in the history of the United States. And also, the Great Society. Yes. And yep. Medicare and Medicaid. Talk about your dad and, and your desire to sort of follow in his uh, public service footsteps. Yeah. Um uh, he has so much, so many great stories he used to tell about his years with Lyndon Johnson. And, um, you know, uh, for me, uh, the most impactful president until we got to Biden. Uh, we can talk about that. Biden has had some incredible impact uh, uh, in his term. But, um, yeah, my uh, my dad was great. We, we lost him uh, almost two years ago. And thank you. And I, I really wish he was here with me now as I'm running for office because he would have loved every single minute of this. He never understood the entertainment business, right? <laughs> so he always wanted to be helpful and be a partner with me in that. But um, it wasn't his uh, wheelhouse. And uh, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, this, most of the stories that he told about Johnson aren't fit for, uh, you know, the airwaves. I'm, I don't know what the podcast rules are. But did he get close yelled at? Well, so here's what happened. My dad was a Democrat from Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a rarity, uh, even back then. And he came out to Congress to work for then Democratic Senator Mike Monroney Mm -hmm. uh, to do a kind of revamp Congress um, assignment. It was supposed to last a couple of years, and then he was going to go back to Oklahoma. And as he was finishing up his work, he got called into a meeting at the White House. Who he, He thought he was meeting with Harry McPherson, who was on Lyndon Johnson's staff. And, uh, and he rolled up to the guard gate, and the guard said, um, oh, I see you're seeing the president today. And that was news to him. So he said, um, okay, yeah. And they, those days you could drive right in there through the guard gate. And, um, and they put him in the, um, in the waiting room there with the library. I think it's the um, – not the Lincoln bedroom, the Roosevelt room. And, uh, and said, the president's going to be a few hours, uh, actually. Um, can you wait? He's like, of course. And he didn't know anything about Johnson, so – there was a biography of Johnson on the uh, bookcase. So he just started reading through that. And about three hours later, he gets called into the Oval Office, and it's just him and LBJ. Whoa. And LBJ starts laying out the Great Society and what he wanted to do. Um, and he's sitting there just listening, says, yes, sir. And, and then he stands up, and he pokes him in the chest and says, here's what I need you to do. Oh. And uh, he got, you know, as we say, voluntold, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it? What was he told to do? He, he wanted him to, uh, to help him, you know. Do all that and get back to me tomorrow. Do all that and get back to me tomorrow. Uh, Johnson didn't have a chief of staff, um, oh. much like Kennedy. He had a very small crew of, you know, mostly lawyers who worked with him. So, um, was your dad a lawyer? My dad was a lawyer, yes. Um, so my, my dad went home and my mom was literally packing boxes to go back to Oklahoma. And he said, we've got to unpack. We're staying in D.C. Wow. I, I often thought because I, I, I mourn for my party sometimes. I often think that they, they, they don't have a spine and they need mm. some direction that what we need is an LBJ to twist a few arms. We have great programs like he had the great society. Get in there and let's do it. No. I mean, all this stuff that Biden is so good at that doesn't get the credit for, I really think needs to be sold stronger. 
I hear this from everybody. And what we know is that um, as Democrats, we want our leaders to be strong. Mm -hmm. We want our leaders to go on offense, to put our head into the wind and not be back on our heels responding to all these egregious and disgusting things that the Republicans are doing right now. And we win on all of the policy issues. Eighty percent of the electorate when it comes to reproductive freedom. Right. When it comes to common sense gun laws, um, when it comes to climate, you know, 80 percent of the electorate is is with us on that. So um, so you're absolutely right, Fritz. We need folks who are uh, talking about our values and not being responsive to the Republicans all the time. And uh, I, I said it in the beginning. Biden is the most impactful president in my lifetime. What he has been able to achieve and what he is bringing to our economy and the people, uh, you know, we need to be shouting that from the rooftops because the media will will spell a different narrative. They're going to glom on to whatever, um, you know, scary poll is is in the news. And that's all you're going to hear about. Bad marketing. I mean, I think that the, the, the lower level people, the, the Democratic governors, the Democratic Congress people and senators need to get out there on the stump and sell it because they're the people that people are more likely to listen to in their various districts. Well, I, I think they're sending Gavin out there. Who else is going out? Well, Gavin's they, doing a good job. <laughs> Gavin's doing yeah, a good job. Like yeah. who else? I think Cory Booker should be out. Who, yes. who do you think should be out? Cory, yes. Cory Booker is a great speaker. Absolutely. Um, there is, uh, I'm going to go a deep cut here. Okay. Uh, there is a woman who is a messaging expert. Her name is Anat Shankurasario. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who is uh, interested in political messaging, there's a great organization called Way to Win. And Anat has ASO Communications also. And what she's fond of saying is that Democrats are always selling the recipe and not the brownie. Right. <laughs> you know, and we tend to get so in the weeds and so overcomplicate things when we really just need to talk about our values. Uh, you may remember um, uh, and your listeners may remember in the last midterm elections, there was a time when the top message was protect our freedoms, even above the economy. That wasn't by mistake. There was a lot of work getting that narrative out into the media ecosystem, talking about it through social media influencers that, you know, then uh, the newscasters and stuff would pick up on and made that the top issue. We talked about our values. We talked about how important it was to protect reproductive rights. We talked about how important it was to protect Social Security. And that became part of the zeitgeist. So what, what we need to do and what more Democrats need to do is instead of reading a poll and thinking, okay, this is what these people, what, what is important. We need to t- uh, talk about what our values are, talk about the issues that we know resonate with everybody, and, and then move the polling, right? You know, control the narrative. Well, That's what Republicans have done so well for so long. And the poll questions are written in a certain type of way. Right. So they get a certain response that's maybe even like it's been a leading question. So we kind of know what people's issues are. Abortion is a number one issue. And whether and some men may think that it's it, it may fade into the background. It never fades in the background of a woman's mind who's of no. childbearing age. It doesn't. It's top of mind constantly. So those are those are key issues. We want to we want to be able to send our kids to school without worrying all day. Yeah, those are top of mind things. You don't need a pollster to tell you what matters to people. Yeah, I, I've heard uh, campaign pollsters say, uh, "Oh, you want to do a, a poll? Great. Uh, what do you want the result to be?" 
right? Oh, yeah, that's why. Backwards they're, engineering. They're, 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 they're like those experts that are hired to testify in a criminal case. And you I know. don't want to paint with the broad brush, too, no. because there are some some very good pollsters who who will also talk about the inequities in the polling system. You know, I can think of uh, Cornell uh, Belcher as one of them who is <laughs> yeah. who is always yeah. you know, spouting mm-hmm. the truth around that. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's great. Well, your passions that you have running for your state office are also passions that are very important to the United States, like good jobs, Mm -hmm. the housing crisis, which is bad everywhere, but no worse than California because we have good weather to be homeless out here, universal health care, and a clean environment. Yeah. I mean, it's it's simple. Like we need to put people first and uh, get away from this zero-sum game thinking that uh, has dominated our economic policy for so long uh, and it's been engineered that way to you know keep people of influence and influence right but here's the thing the zero-sum thinking uh, is a complete misnomer and it's rooted actually in institutional racism you know um, when you are giving to other people when you're giving investment opportunities to other people when you're investing in communities that are left behind that's how you build our economy it's equitable it's the right thing to do but it's also what builds revenue for everybody it's not a pie that you have to share you're baking more pies so you know all of these issues when it comes to housing and homelessness right you have um a lot of attitudes about building housing in in certain neighborhoods that it's more difficult. Cities not you know uh, not adhering to their housing requirements and fighting the state on the mandates that we have to house folks and everything. Um, you can't paint for you know, with a broad brush. You know, certain housing is better in some areas than others, but we all need to work towards the same North Star, and that's we got to house everybody. And the other thing that I think that in in conservative thinking, it's like this is mine. Don't come and take it. But what you're what you're saying is that the more people have, the more they can spend on what you sell or whatever your whatever company you work at. And then you'd get a raise. It's it's just kind of like when everybody does better, everybody does better. And it's just that simple. There's abundance. If if everyone's needs are met, then they can buy a toaster, then they can buy the streaming service that you that you that you work at HBO plus or yeah. Max or whatever they're calling it. That's right. So it's like, let's give people more so they can support the economy and you can get a raise or, or your company can thrive. But what I uh, wanted to do was like a little primer because a lot of folks, even who are interested in politics, don't understand how state governments right. work and that it's a model of our federal government. So explain what what it what position you are running for and how and how it all works. Thank you. Great question and full disclosure. Uh, before Trump got elected, I didn't really pay attention to state <laughs> legislature. I I didn't really even know who my assembly member was. I would just vote for the D you know, and move on with my life. Uh, California happens to be the fourth largest economy in the world. Uh, and the, the work we do in the state legislature has an amazing impact on folks' lives, not just in California, but in the entire country and, in fact, in the, in the whole world. But the, the assembly is like the House of Representatives for the state government. So just like our federal government has uh, Congress, which is made up of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the executive branch, which is the president and the vice president, um, we have the assembly and the state Senate. And then, of course, the governor and lieutenant governor uh, is our executive branch. So I'd be one of 80 assembly members uh, serving, as you said, Fritz, the San Fernando Valley, um, where I've lived for 30 years and raised my family and worked. 
worked and used to own a small business in the entertainment industry. Um, and uh, and like I said, the decisions we make, you know, we handle funding, you know, so, uh, you know, stuff like mental health, uh, addiction services, money for that. Uh, we have a proposition coming up on the ballot, Proposition 1, that uh, is uh, Governor Newsom's, uh, you know, project to get more housing for mentally uh, ill folks and uh, and addicted folks and and more wraparound services for that. It's a way to raise some more money through a bond measure. And then I'm kind of digressing, but also taking some of the money we have for housing that we need. Um, so those are the kind of things that we can do. Social programs, um, we can help stimulate businesses, we can protect renters, um, we, uh, we fight for people. It's a job where I get to wake up every day and my job is work to make people's lives better. I mean, what a gift. And, uh, and I mentioned the impact that California has on the rest of the country and the world. Uh, if you look at some of the climate legislation that we've been able to pass in, uh, here in California, we have transformed the automobile industry because we have a mandate for all electric cars by 2035. All new car sales in California um, will be electric uh, by 2035. That has single-handedly ramped up the production of electric vehicles all over the country. And we just passed um, Henry, uh, Henry Stern, Senator Stern just passed some legislation last term on corporate accountability to um, disclose and adjust for your carbon footprint through all three scope one scope two scope three I don't want to get into the weeds on that but you know uh, you know identifying and dealing with the carbon footprint for corporations doing business in California so if you want to do business in the fourth largest economy in the world then you have to adhere to our rules and the federal government always catches up with that so it's an exciting opportunity to really make a huge impact like I said God bless anyone who wants to go to uh, D.C. right now. No. California is where it's at. And fixing it at the state level will fix it at the national level eventually. It does. And, and we work with our federal counterparts, too. So, you know, in situations like we're, we're in right now where Republicans are in control of the House and, you, and there's not a lot, if any, uh, really basically zero legislation going through our, our government, you know, we can get a head start on some issues and we can work with our federal counterparts there so that once they're on the books here, uh, it makes it easier for them to bring that up nationally, too. Another thing you're passionate about is gun violence. Uh, that happens to be something that hurts my soul m yeah. m more than other issues. But I've always been very proud of my state. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at now the new open carry law in Florida, which is just irresponsible, Texas is off the chain. I'm proud of where this state is. What should we do to improve what is already one of the best systems in the country? Yeah, um, I'm going to steal this line from Governor Newsom. We have some of the strongest gun laws in the country, but we have some of the weakest gun laws in the world. Right. Wow. And gun violence is the number one killer of our children. Number one killer of our children, of people aged 21 and, and younger, gun violence is the number one killer. So we just passed some good uh, legislation. We have a tax on ammunition that's going to go to gun violence prevention programs. Uh, we uh, have limitations to where you can carry guns in our state uh, that Senator Portantino just, challenged, uh, just championed. Um, you know, we have some and, and everything we do, including that that federal uh, legislation that we got passed um, last when Democrats were still in power. It seems piecemeal. And it seems like a small step because we need to do so much more, but it does save lives. It saves lives. Um, but, 
you know, that's something that we have to do federally. Like we need an assault weapons ban right now. Uh, there is no reason why anyone uh, should have an assault weapon uh, if you're not in the military. I, I don't get the disconnect. We were talking about polls earlier. The whole country polls people, 75 to 80 percent of the American people want to have, you know, red flag laws or, right. you know, the, at least the minimum of background checks. Even Yet, Republicans, even, the even Republicans, gun owners. I don't yes. get whether they're voting against their what would be their interest, I would think. I don't I don't get why they, they can't translate uh, what people want to legislation campaign funding it's about money yes, that's what i was going to say it it's all about money there's yes. still a lot of gun money and uh and politicians who are still willing to uh kowtow to the nra so um you know we need more folks with political will to stand up to it the work that groups like moms demand action and uh brady um uh ha- have been doing is amazing. Their membership now dwarfs the NRA, and we just Wayne you know, Lapierre just had yeah, to I resign. Love that. That I just love great. to watch yeah. him twist in the wind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, um, you know, it's it's change moves slowly, and it feels Sisyphean. You're pushing that boulder up the hill, and it comes back down on you. But you know, um, we need to you know, keep doing it. And, and the important thing about any of this, like real institutional systemic change, we need people with us. We can't do it on our own. Everything that we've done, every major social movement for change in this country that's ever been successful is because there's been people behind it, people on the ground making noise, showing up and making their voices heard. So, you know, that's how we're going to get it done. Well, just so you know that you're, you're stepping into a, a grand circle and completing it for us because we've had Adam Schiff on the show twice. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've had Laura Friedman on who is now running for Adam Schiff's seat. I, and I'm running for her seat. And you're running for her seat. So right. here we, Our here we are. Our planes are working. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us uh, what you know about uh, Sacramento. Have you visited? Do you get to audit the class? Do you get to um, <laughs> like uh, shadow somebody? Or how do you learn and get ready for possibly taking on this position? That's such a great question. Um, yeah, I do have friends who are serving in the assembly there. And um, I uh, I go up to Sacramento a lot. Uh, as a candidate, I like to call it speed dating because I go <laughs> and, and, and am up there for a couple of days with just back-to-back meetings, you know, um, getting to know the folks up there and uh, listening to um, the issues that are important to folks and um, uh, it's uh, it's exciting you know there's a ton of really inspiring people who are leading the way up there uh, folks like Assemblymember member Pilar Schiavo who um, used to came from a union organizing background and uh, is is now doing amazing work there and I can't wait to work with her um, we have uh, an assemblyman here in Los Angeles named Isaac Bryan, who is such an inspiring leader. I mean, you were talking about who are who you know, some of the great voices that can you know take our democratic message out there. He's certainly one of them. Um, Jesse Gabriel is uh, a neighboring district assembly member who is now the chair of the budget committee. So he's essentially the second most powerful uh, assembly member there, and 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 he's been of great help to me. And um, so yeah, it's. Uh, um, you know, 
I would say the important thing to know about how we get things done in Sacramento is, of course, you have to be able to work within different caucuses. You have to have the ability to build coalitions amongst different groups because there's a lot of interests there. But, you know, I'm going to go back to what I just said. To get the big things done, you mentioned that um, in my bio that I'm uh, a fan of single-payer health care, universal health care. Uh, I, cert- I Cal- certainly am. Uh, Cal care. Cal Talk care. about that. I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, well, d- just to finish my thought, to get Cal care done, it's going to take people. It's going to take people power, not just up in, uh, us up in Sacramento building those coalitions, but folks standing up and making noise. Right now, our health care system is completely upside down and backwards. It is a system that is built on making enormous profit off of sick people with no incentive for keeping people healthy. Mm. Uh, it is expensive, and too many people fall through the cracks. Here in California, I'm very proud of our enrollment. We, are, uh, we have a very high enrollment uh, rate. Um, and uh, as of January 1st, we are now covering undocumented residents here in California, too. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, they had a big bump in the recent, not only in California, but nationally in the Obama, uh, uh, in the uh, Affordable Care Act, they had a big bump in signups. Is that a good sign that people are trying to protect this system? Because there are people trying to destroy it, too, in the red states. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we had a lot to do. I was part of a coalition to protect Obamacare back in, um, I guess it was 2018, um, when uh, when the Republicans were trying to repeal it. And again, you know, we got a lot of people on the ground out in front of offices, marching, rallying, making their making noise. And a big part of that was public information around enrollment and making sure that you know people don't miss enrollment opportunities. Because back then, and I'm sure still now, Republicans were kind of hiding the enrollment deadlines because they wanted Obamacare to fail. Uh, and, uh, and so we saved the ACA and, uh, and it's helped a lot of people. You know, my own daughter was a, a preemie when she was born. She was just a pound and a half. This was 21 years ago. And uh, we had our SAG after health insurance because uh, we've been I've been a SAG. God bless me. that yeah. boy! I'll tell you, it's, yeah, it's saved my family. Yes, it saved it saved my daughter's life, and that price tag was a million and a half dollars. Mm. And we would have been facing a lifetime of medical debt. We would have been ruined. Still today, uh, even though our enrollment is very good, too many people fall through the cracks. Too many people are making the choice in our state, in the fourth largest economy in the world, between medicine that they need and food. Yes. Uh, the, the, the at-risk food thing. And I, I, I just, just the, it boils down to one thing for me. I don't think a taxpaying person who has spent 65 years feeding the economy of the United States at whatever level job he has, if he has a catastrophic heart issue at 65, he should end up bankrupt. I think that's immoral. It is. It's immoral and it's also unsustainable. It's incredibly expensive. When you talk about the strain that uninsured folks have coming into hospitals and ERs and all that, you know, um, so... I really believe in single payer nationwide. I would like to see it happen nationally. I think we can get CalCare done here in California and show the way and pave the way. I was going to say, if CalCare works, would that be a good example to the federal government? Absolutely, so. yeah. absolutely, yeah. And what an honor it would be—the honor of my life to help get that across oh the goodness. finish line. Well, when we t- when you talk about insuring uh, undocumented uh, citizens. That feels like a fox talking residents, I guess you should say. But yeah. it just feels like something they're going to run with. Like, why should I pay to insure people who aren't who mm-hmm. aren't citizens? And so I always try to frame things in ways that that are uh, attractive to selfish people. So how <laughs> does it benefit the fox viewer 
if we insure those folks? Yeah, well, um, first of all, what we just talked about, what what's the cost to us when uh, an uninsured person comes into an emergency room? Mm-hmm. So what happens- You're gonna pay sometime. You're, you're, you're paying anyway, um, and you're paying more. It is more expensive. And also, uh, because folks don't have access to health insurance, they are less likely to go in for preventative care. They are right. less likely to take care of injuries and illnesses as they come until they get so severe that they're forced to go into the emergency room and now, you know the outcome for them is uh, is way you know way worse of course and um, you know for the selfish person who is just thinking about themselves in this situation it's actually way uh, a bigger strain on our economy and on their pocketbooks too so and meanwhile, uh, it's the right thing to do but it's also the fiscally responsible thing to do and meanwhile those undocumented people are are picking your food and that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> they're not just here sitting at home watching, no. you know, reruns of Happy Days. They are they're working yeah. harder than any of us. And Absolutely. That's, that's what I that always made me smile about this, about the the undocumented crisis. There are people in North Dakota who've probably never seen a Mexican person. So now we're going to stop these people at the border. They're taking over the country. First of all, the California economy is the California agricultural economy is 25% of the agricultural economy of the United States. We need those workers in this state. That's right. Meantime, these people who work elsewhere are bitching about it and they don't know what they're talking about. We um, are the breadbasket of the yes. world. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of structural questions. Your ten will be two years, right? That's right, yeah. Are there term limits in the state assembly? There are. We have uh, six terms that we can do, so I can serve 12 years. Do you feel like... <laughs> I mean, when, when you're just two years, I, I think this is probably more obvious in the Congress. But when you have a two-year tenure, like half your time is fundraising for the next yeah. election. That seems counterproductive. Uh, you're not wrong. Uh, it is tough. And, and I think you're right. It's a bigger problem with Congress. You know, um, members... Uh, spend half their time raising money for their uh, next campaign. Um, and, you know, you really want folks to be able to focus on the issues, dig deep, you know, um, and and write good legislation and champion it and make sure it gets through. So, um, you know, the Assembly has term limits and uh, we expanded our term limits. They were actually shorter terms before, so I'm glad they expanded it. Um, I think it takes uh, most folks a few years to um, get into leadership and get into positions where um, uh, they're really, uh, you know, you know, exercising the the levers there in Sacramento to maximum benefit. Um, but uh, you know, fortunately, I think in my particular district, at least, it's not a red to blue seat. It's a very uh, safe blue seat. Uh, and as long as um, as I'm doing right by my constituents, the people that I seek to serve, uh, and responding to them, being available to them, and and working on the issues that are important to them, um, you know, the the reelection and the incumbency is, uh, you know. I don't. It's yeah. It's not a done deal. Of course, you have to run uh, run for re-election every every two years. But it's uh, it's not as much as like what Gill has faced and and these red to blue seats and and some of our frontline assembly candidates who are always under threat and and have to be running for office all you know all year long. Talk for a moment, if you would, about the difference between uh, campaign money from from donors, small small amount donors. Mm. Um, PAC money and then dark money, because I'm I'm wondering if folks on the Republican side of things don't have to campaign as hard because this dark money is coming in, maybe coming in from another country, but it's laundered. So explain campaign financing. 
a little bit if you could. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, it's egregious the amount of money that we spend on campaigns. I mean, to a certain extent, it's necessary stuff. You know, here you see my yard sign behind us that cost actual money to produce a yard sign. So, um, you know, we have to raise money to reach voters. Um, you know, we have what's called IEs that work in races too. So, um, those are independent expenditures and, uh, and here in California, we've done a good job at creating disclosure laws. So we know who are the IEs, who is, uh, working in races other than the candidates. Um, so we're, we're pretty transparent about that. Um, but yes, there's a lot of Democrats who take a lot of corporate money. I'm very proud of our campaign. Uh, we have um, almost four times the individual donations of any other candidate in this race. Wow. Um, and, and you can add to that wealth by which, what's your website? Uh, PearsonforCalifornia.com. Okay. What a nice, what, what a nice We're not playing up. around there here. We, we want you to become wealthy. You we know need your friends stuff. in high places. <laughs> PearsonforCalifornia.com. Um, and... Uh, yeah, uh, we are a grassroots campaign. We're the top fundraiser uh, coming out of the first disclosure. And, um, you know, I haven't taken any corporate PAC money. Uh, and, uh, and we're really proud of that. You know, we are a grassroots, people-powered campaign. I think a great way to end this interview is for you to talk about the melancholia that your daughter suffered mm. after the 2016 election and explain to her what the hell just happened is part of the reason why you became a, a, an activist. You know, um, big sigh before that one, right? Um, I was, I felt like I had blinders on. I really did. I was volunteering for Hillary. Uh, I was making phone calls. I was trying to talk people off a cliff in Florida who thought, you know, Trump's going to get elected. And I said, no way. You know, no one's going to fall for that grifters, you know, um, BS. And um, after he was elected, my daughter looked at us and said, are we ever going to be happy again? And we were, uh, like so many of us, so despondent. What I didn't know then, and what I will share with you all and the listeners, was we all have great capacity to make an impact on our democracy. And we don't teach civics uh, anymore in school, really. We do a little bit, but you know, not, not since the 70s have we been really serious about showing people how they can get involved and take agency in civics and in our democracy. And what I found when I started Swing Left, uh, sort of by accident, you know, signing up to do a house party that became the largest one in the country, had about 220 people at a church hall down the street, was we have agency. We all have a circle of influence. And when you start doing that, when you start stepping out of your comfort zone and taking action, it's incredibly empowering. And I like to say action is the best anecdote for anxiety. And so selfishly, that's why I got into this work. Uh, and then I was hooked. You find leaders like Mayor Bass who carry themselves with such joy. She's a community organizer to her core. She's part of this joyous community of people dealing with dire issues dire, dire issues, life and death issues. But because we're all part of the solution, because we're all working to own our power and our own influence in our lives, you know, we have a lightness and a joy about the work that we do. And we get to do what we can every day, and then we pass that on to the next generation. They come up behind us, and that's the arc of history. And your daughter got to watch you do that. And how Absolutely. did that inform, inform the second half of her childhood? She doesn't care for it. 
Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, she's, she is engaged. You know, I will tell you, one of the things that gives me the most hope, and this is so cliche to say the kids give me the most hope. Oh, me too. Um, but, but they really do. And I'll tell you why. It's not just a pie in the sky, the kids are our future kind of thing. When you look at the last election, the midterm election, we had record registration from young people. Yeah. And we had record turnout from young people. What I know from my campaign background is if uh, kids don't vote, the first opportunity they have to vote, that first time they're um, eligible. It is incredibly difficult to get them engaged until they are 30. So there's this you know, 20 to 30 you know, decade of folks that are really hard to get engaged into our elections. But if they vote the first opportunity that they have, they become habitual voters. It becomes part of their identity and who they are. And that's what we're seeing all over the country. We're seeing people stepping up, these kids stepping up, who know the existential threat of climate change very intimately, who have been affected by gun violence, who in the case of my daughter has fewer rights than her mom did when she was her age. And they're not standing for it. That, that, that's what I wanted to say. You were talking about it, 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 the kids are our hope. They truly are. I have a daughter that was 23 at the time when Roe v. Wade was overturned. She was 22. Mm-hmm. She lived at Loyola Marymount with five other girls in a house. And I thought, I want to call down there and see how they feel about you know the Dobbs decision. And they were pissed. I called down there and they said, no, this cannot stand. And I thought that made me feel good. I thought, are they going to be nonplussed about this? They said, I'd love to care about it, but I'm getting my nails done this afternoon. They were angry. And I really think they're going to be activists in this whole thing. Second of all, and you know, if you pay too much attention to the polls, you can go into a deep depression. But if you look (laughs) at where the polls were in the midterm, the Mm -hmm. 2022, how we violated all those polls and how we came out of a hopeful side of all that, I just think that's where we're going to be at 24. I just have a feeling we're going to be okay at the end of 2024. Well, I have a a question for Garrett and and Mason and Jordan. I'm I'm just wondering, did did you guys register as soon as you turned 18? And Garrett, do your friends talk about registering? Garrett's only 16 years old, but I just want to know how, how the election of Trump has impacted your awareness of politics and your and the role that you can play. Um, I think I did. I think I did register as soon as I was eighteen. Mm-hmm. Um, that was right around the twenty sixteen election. Yes, mm-hmm. but I, I was still too young to vote at that time. But I did vote. In the- Do you get a sense of how important this next election is? That's what I worry about with kids. Are they so involved in their own lives and the narcissism of youth? Do Do, do, you, do you feel how important this is? I mean, I'm planning to register when I'm eighteen, but I feel like a lot of people nowadays don't really care. I feel like when you're raised in a place when where it's not a conversation that happens you don't have to worry that's a very you don't have to have to worry about it Mm -hmm. it's it's taking care of it for Mm -hmm. you Mm. yeah but i i think that i i I know that you probably know that a lot of people got into politics because trump was elected so as dark as this cloud was on our horizon it awakened a lot of activism in folks to get involved in 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 I went to the first indivisible meeting that happened, you know, in Santa Barbara, and and it was just a church full of people, yeah, just wanting to know like how can we, what can we do, and you probably had had the same similar experience of this. Just there was that period between the election and the inauguration where we booked tickets to Washington to take part in the women's march, and because right. everybody was just hungry for something they could do to be a part of the solution to this. 
That's absolutely right. And we saw such a uh, huge influx of volunteer energy like we haven't seen, uh, you know, since the 60s, really, of engagement. And, um, you know, we had uh, a very strong coalition that Obama was able to bring along on his message of hope and of change, hope and change, right? Uh, This dwarfed that. Unfortunately, fear uh, and the rise of fascism, you know, really galvanized more people than the hope and change message. But, um, you know, we we need to keep that energy going. And you talked about the polls and and how they were, you know, uh, so many people, you know, got it wrong in terms of this so-called red wave that was going to happen in the last midterms. Uh, I really like to look at volunteer enthusiasm as the true marker. Hmm. You can look at some bellwether elections like you see in in the uh, not off years because every year is the different elections but like Virginia and some of the state house races that we see and look at how volunteers have engaged in those races and what those results have been as a better bellwether for what's happening uh, in our federal elections and um, you know people are, are still stepping up. They're still volunteering. And that gives me great hope for, um, for what you mentioned Fritz is yet again the most important election of our lives. Uh, and one other question. I don't want to. I'll, 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 we usually I'll ask a positive question, but I'll ask this dark one before we finish. Yeah, let's go dark. Do, and then just, no, I mean, I mean, I'm really. <laughs> this is occupies like 85 percent of my consciousness during the day. Regardless of this, two parts of this question. Regardless of which way the election turns out, whether Trump is voted in or whether he loses. Do you worry about the turmoil in the country? I I mean, I think there's the chance for violence and some bad behavior, no matter which way it goes. And I worry about that. It is a dark question, and uh, I I would be foolish if I didn't worry about that. Um, I believe our democracy is on uh, a very thin line right now. And uh, it, it is going to take all of us not going to sleep uh, and, and staying woke and staying engaged to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, what I will say is this uh, extremist MAGA minority is actually small but very, very loud mm-hmm. and obviously very influential and has hijacked this Republican Party. But there are way more of us than there are of them. And I'll take it back around to what we talked about. Democratic priorities, democratic policies are wildly popular with the bulk of the of our country. Yeah, centrist policies. The country really is centrist, aren't they? It goes either way. And, you know, Trump, again, as people say every day, on all the talking head shows, Trump is not the problem. He's the indication of the problem. So mm-hmm. even if Trump gets elected out, the overall flavor in the world of authoritarianism is not going to go away. So our job is not done, even if he's not elected. Yeah, in many ways, um, Trump just threw a big uh, spotlight on the problem. You know, because he's uh, so loud and overt about the way you know the rise of fascism. You know, frankly, and, you know, uh, Biden sort of called it out with the kind of semi-fascism or whatever his term was. But, you know, when you look at at history and and what's what's happening, then, you know, you you can't call it anything else. And uh, and so uh, I guess thank you, Trump, for shining a spotlight on what was happening already. But, um, you know, uh, now there's people who who see it and who are engaged. And and, you know, we've all got to come together and fight and fight like heck to make sure that we, you know, uh, take care of people. I was wondering about uh, 
principled Republicans at the state level, because we saw them in, in Rusty Bowers and in in uh, in Georgia uh, in terms of uh, resisting the pressure from Trump after the 20 after the 2020 election. We saw principled Republicans on the state level. We don't see them in federal on Capitol Hill right now. No, they what, got voted out. They got they yeah, lost they, their primaries. They got, they got primaried. Mm-hmm. So what do we see at the California State House in terms of a MAGA representation or are the Republicans at the state house, more of the principled style. That's a great question. You know, we have a Democratic supermajority in the state house, and they certainly, um, uh, the Republicans in the state house will will try to catch us on some things, and they've uh, they've thrown some uh, criminal justice bills and stuff like that, some fentanyl stuff, some um, uh, you know sex trafficking bills that you know. Um, painted a very broad brush that were kind of engineered to trap Democrats, and they, d- and they did. Um, but uh, overall, you know, I think the problem uh, that we have in Sacramento right now is not one of party, but of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the the different legislators and, and where their funding is coming from. There's still a lot of fossil fuel money uh, oh. in the legislature, uh, even amongst Democrats. And uh, and we know how important it is to move further and faster uh, into our green economy and uh, and save our future, save our our kids' future from the effects of climate change. And there are forces that are are working against that. Uh, we're a huge fossil fuel producer here in, in California. So, mm. um, so you know, there's some issues that shouldn't be partisan that that we can all work on. And um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit old school. I'm a progressive Democrat proudly, but I'm pragmatic. And um, I grew up in D.C. at a time when uh, we all could at least get along and work on issues, even if we agreed on the path forward. So, um, you know, that's going to be how I operate in Sacramento. Well, Weezy's going to wrap this up, but I can't tell you how interesting this conversation was. It was a great primer. You can tell me. Go ahead. No, no. It was a great primer on state politics. Elaborate. I love getting your opinion because you were sort of a a megaphone for the issues that are important not only to California but for the whole country. Just enjoyed it very much. Thanks for coming here. Thank you so much for having me. Good luck to you, my friend. And if you win the primary, come back here and we'll beat the other person up with you. Uh, well, yeah, in a respectful way. Sure, let's do that. <laughs> sure, <okay. laughs> sure, respectfully. Here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. I'm also on TikTok, Louise Planker. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel at Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating, if you would, wherever you get your podcast. Talk about us with your friends over brunch and on social media. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We will only bother your inbox just that once a week. And trust me, it's worth a read. There's lots of funny photographs and quizzes and contest opportunities we thank our guests steve pearson and gil cisneros our team includes producer dina friedman john maddox bill Filipiak, thomas hubble mason brown garrett arch chris baldwin jordan reyes and you our theme music is by me and john maddox and i'm louise planker here with fritz coleman and steve pearson be well and wise and we will see you along the media path